most iconic figures of the 21st century faces the impact of a life-threatening conspiracy. After serving his country for decades, his government will proceed on a campaign to take down this man, this leader, and burn his world to the root. This is the thrilling conclusion of American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's, Let's get lit. This is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, you look great this week. How are you feeling? Ooh, thank you. I, uh, I had better weeks, but I'm coming along. How about you? Yeah. How are you feeling? Well, I'm a lot better now that we're done reading this book, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Now, readers, if you've been listening to our show for a while, you know, we have a theme that we discuss each week inspired by the book. This week, that theme will be how the U.S. and Japan became allies even after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But we're going to discuss that at the end. Let's dive right away into part two of our book. Alexis, are you ready to take it away? Oh, and by the way, if you're interested in the authors behind this biography, they spent 25 years working on it. They shall share a Pulitzer for this book. Um, If you want to know what else, any more context around the story of Oppenheimer, listen to part one. And Alexis, the floor is yours. Okay, so in the aftermath of the bombing of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Oppenheimer became a celebrity. Um, He became known as the father of the atomic bomb. He was on magazine covers around the nation. He was found to be an eloquent speaker, a persuasive speaker, and Mm -hmm. he held influence over many scientists, uh, uh, many people, including scientists. Um, And although he was comfortable with the adulation, he told the American um, Philosophical Society, we have made a thing, a most terrible weapon that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world. A thing that by all the standards of the world we grew up in is an evil thing. And by Mm -hmm. so doing, we have raised again the question of whether science is good for man. He referred to the bomb as a weapon of terror and aggression. He said the bomb was used against an essentially defeated enemy. Pretty much from that point on, Api, as we referred to him in the previous chapter, mm-hmm. and many other Los Alamos scientists wanted the government to understand the dangers of um, having this atomic bomb. So it, they wanted to inform the government the potentials of uh, an arms race, the impossibility of defeating um, or having a defense against the atomic bomb, future wars, and the need of, for international control. Um, he spoke to the War Department, um, President Truman and others. He he talked a lot and the scientists wanted change. So they um, organized a an association among those scientists as, at Los Alamos in an effort to um, have the government hear their plea. Um, and that didn't go as well as they thought. They were kind of silenced. What did you think about this, this rush to moralize what they like the future of American warfare from the uh, scientist's point of view? Like, what did you think about that? Yeah. So I, I, as I think about their feelings, they were very concerned about what they had created and they wanted, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting people to uh, know the dangers of what they created, but it, it was really too late for that at this point, in my opinion. How about you? Yeah. I agree. One scientist um, brought out that Oppenheimer should, I believe it was a scientist who made the statement. It might've been a politician, but his point of view was Oppenheimer shouldn't feel so remorseful for what was created because what was created was just pieced together from what already existed. And if anyone should feel sorry, it's God. (laughs) Do you remember that line? I do remember that line. 
I thought that was such a shocking statement because that can be said about anything, anything that humans use to destroy each other. Well, it existed. It was pieced together by elements already found in nature. So our Mm -hmm. hands are clean. That's not how it works. And these scientists put together something of mass destruction. I don't think there was any confusion on the part of uh, political leaders as to the damage it could cause, including, um, essentially the end of civilization. (laughs) I don't think anyone was confused about that. They just wanted to um, feel like, well, we have it and we know what to do with it as Americans. And so this might even bring about peace because now everyone will listen to us. Because we get to wave a threat. And no one else has scientists. (laughs) No one else has scientists. Not as smart as our scientists. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so but but the the way that it's written in the book, Oppenheimer and his uh, colleagues, his allies really took up this like moral mantle. And I don't feel like that was their place. That was their place before Trinity. (laughs) Once Trinity happened. Yeah, they they made the weapon. So these are the consequences of those actions. It's not like you can now put the brakes on it. That was just my opinion, though. Because of Oppie's influence in Washington, he continued to be monitored by the FBI for communist um, activity. In fact, the FBI uh, head, J. Edgar Hoover, started circulating derogatory information about Oppie's ties to the communism, to communism. He sent a summary of Oppie. Uh, Oppenheimer's file to the White House and the Secretary of the State. Hoover also reported that uh, Communist Party officials in San Diego had been overheard referring to Oppenheimer as regularly registered um, with communism. Oppie continued under illegal surveillance um, by the FBI, even in his workspaces. So let's jump. I, I decided to focus on just one section of this second part. So we're covering chapters 24 to 40, the end of the book. I'm going to pick up in 1953 when they began to focus. um, They were always focused on Oppenheimer, but they um, went to zero in on Oppenheimer as a threat that they needed to get rid of to silence, if you will. So because he has such a powerful influence in Washington. So in 1953, February, Oppenheimer gave a speech in New York. um, And that was, it says, essentially an unclassified version of the disarmament report that he had sent to the new Eisenhower administration, urging a policy of candor regarding nuclear weapons. Eisenhower gave Oppenheimer consent to present this speech. The speech was given to members of um, the Council of Foreign Relations. It had businessmen um, and other Mm -hmm. leaders in this meeting. Uh, The speech was considered provocative. The nation's most famous nuclear science scientist was calling upon the government to release closely guarded nuclear secrets and discuss candidly the consequences of nuclear war. Um, here was a private citizen armed with the highest security clearance denigrating the secrecy that surrounded the nation's war plans. And so they didn't like that. Some people didn't like it. Other people were, um, they were impressed by his presentation, but there was one person present who was appalled and he saw this as this is the beginning of your end. And that was Louis Strauss. Okay, so he was the man that would eventually um, bring up all these charges against Oppie. Um, Under the Eisenhower administration, Strauss was now the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. And that's the commission that Oppie was on. He was contracted on as an advisor. It was a small commission, maybe about six people from different areas. And I think there were two scientists, maybe one scientist on that commission. Okay, so um, Strauss disagreed with Oppenheimer a lot. And so he took every opportunity to sow seeds of distrust um, of Oppenheimer with Eisenhower. 
In May of 1953, Strauss went to the FBI and told one of Hoover's aides that he was concerned with Oppenheimer's activities. Strauss had learned that Oppie was responsible for hiring David Dawkins, a suspected communist, to Los Alamos, and that he was sponsoring the appointment of Felix Broder, a mathematician who was the son of the former head of the Communist Party of America. So the campaign began to destroy Oppenheimer's reputation. The case was now being built that Oppenheimer was a security risk. Uh, Magazines started attacking uh, Oppenheimer, and it was revealed that Oppenheimer tried to um, block the development of the the H-bomb, but Strauss saved the day. Strauss. I think they wanted wanted to be called Strauss. Like so how did he save the day? Like, I guess he allowed, he um, so when he, Oppenheimer, he allowed Teller to mm-hmm. when he Oppenheimer was saying don't go for it with it. He because of his influence, he was able to say no, please go for it with the bomb, and they continued working on it. Mm. Um, Oppie's candor speech um was eventually published in the in the paper. Um, the speech had been approved by Eisenhower because he agreed with some of Oppie's uh, argument. Views, yeah. Yeah, but Strauss told Eisenhower that he thought the essay was dangerous and its proposal was fatal. And But Oppie wanted the discussion that was around that he, because he wanted... Yeah, he... Go ahead. He... he um, rightly assumed that other countries were also working on nuclear weapons. And so he thought the only way to move forward without destroying each other is being open and honest about where we were with the development of nuclear devices, which have a lot of potential for good, like nuclear energy. Right. Um, and so we should monitor each other, make sure no one's building anything weapon like. Um, and that we are indeed using it for good. Right. Not so, like how we used it the first time we developed. We, <laughs> we yes, because now they're scared that everybody else is going to build something and destroy the world. Mm. OK, so Strauss told Eisenhower that the press saw the essay as a p- approval to release information about the U.S.'s stockpile and their production of weapons. So. At this point, the U.S. is building a stockpile and he Oppenheimer wants people to know. OK, uh, Eisenhower was like, no, no, that's not what he said. And that's nonsense. Um, he I am more security minded than you are, Strauss. So I, I wouldn't have let him write an essay that said that. And besides mm-hmm. that, Strauss, you shouldn't look in. You shouldn't pay attention to what the journalists are writing. And then he added, someone should write a piece to correct the Oppenheimer article. So that's what Strauss added or Eisenhower. That's what Eisenhower added. So it it gave um, Strauss a little bit of uh, feather in his cap. Like maybe I am kind of agreeing with you that he needs to be controlled a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So he this is exactly what Strauss wanted. He's really manipulating Eisenhower, as Mm -hmm. we'll see. Um, in this area. So by August What's Strauss's of, motivation, he got he, embarrassed once by Oppenheimer. Absolutely. And that a was all people, it took. A, a lot of the people that didn't like him at one point, they made him, him feel small. So they, they wanted he to would embarrass back. you in public rooms and yeah. he would do so so eloquently. And then people would walk away thinking you were the dumbest person on earth forever. <laughs> <laughs> You would be like, excuse me, can I ask a question? And he would be like, well, from you, this question would be stupid. And here are three reasons why. And everybody would be like, mm-mm, I quit. It's always a bad so, look. He, he, it, they didn't like it. You know, they won't revenge. And he, okay? enjoyed, he enjoyed doing it. He was a haughty person. He brought Strauss down to size, cut him down to size. And he asked a friend, how did I do? And his friend was like, too well. You did too well, Oppenheimer. Yikes. You're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by August of 1953, a newspaper headline read, the Reds test H-bomb only nine months after the first American test of a hydrogen bomb. Now, 
although it was um, it was not the technical advancement that the newspaper made it seem, it gave Strauss further ammunition against Oppenheimer because um, he said the Soviets were at least four years behind. So when Strauss officially became the chairman of this Atomic Energy Commission, Strauss caught Oppie's friend and lawyer, um, Herb, Herb Marx, and told Oppie that he better look out. So, again, Oppie's on this commission, the AEC commission. Strauss was on the commission as well, but now he's elevated to the chairman. Once he becomes chairman, he picks up the phone and calls his friend, Oppie's friend, to tell him, I'm coming after your boy, so you better watch out mm-hmm. for him. Listen, after this threat, uh, one, of, one friend told Oppie um, to that this has been, this year has been coming. It's it's bound to happen. You, yeah, this was coming your way. Cause the a last, reckoning, chickens coming home to roost. Very nice. Exactly. That's what he told him. Mm-hmm. So he suggested that he, Oppenheimer, tell his story to the Saturday Evening Post as a confessional. Just put your story that works, out there. Right? Mm, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes if you're caught up in a conspiracy, guys, you go to the press first Mm -hmm. and you do a, oh, shucks, ain't I a stinker? (laughs) Yes, that is what you should do. Mm -hmm. It's the answer. And you ain't got to tell it all. Just tell the worst things. Yes. So people have time to formulate some opinions about you and decide for themselves. They hate you, then they love you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Get it done early. But Oppenheimer wasn't convinced that that was the move to make. Instead, he took his family and he went to Brazil. And while in Brazil, the U.S. (laughs) Embassy monitored his contacts. I thought of you you because one of the babies that they don't like was sick. And the doctor said, "Mm, go someplace warm. I said, yeah, that was really the prescription. You might remember in a past episode. uh, I believe that was our uh, coverage of Jekyll and Hyde. (laughs) Alexis was like, how come doctors don't prescribe vacations anymore? And I kind of let it slide like, oh, Alexis, all she cares about is traveling. But they was really (laughs) prescribing vacations. That is what they did. That's Mm -hmm. genius. So mm-hmm. while Oppenheimer was gone that summer, Strauss spent the entire summer preparing a case against Oppie. Strauss pulled together everybody that even pretended like they didn't like Oppenheimer and built a case against him. A case that he knew that Oppenheimer would be defeated. Now, there mm-hmm. were other people that were trying to bring a case against him. Like there was a, a Wisconsin senator and... Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't feel like whatever he was presenting was enough. So he they kind of pushed him aside and was like, nope, we got our own thing going and we're going to prepare it properly so Oppenheimer can go down. When Oppenheimer mm-hmm. returned from Brazil, he called Strauss to tell him that he was going to Washington and he wanted to see him. So when Oppie told him this, Strauss was like, oh, what are you going to do in Washington? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to monitor him as soon as he touches down, see whatever it is he's doing. Strauss would mm-hmm. later learn that it wasn't that he was going to the White House, as Oppie initially said, he was actually meeting in the bar with a newspaper columnist. Strauss enlisted a man named Borden to draft charges against Oppie. And Borden produced a three-page single-space document that included (laughs) evidence of Oppenheimer's communist associations, his history um, with nuclear weapon recommendations, and concluded that more probably than not, J. Robert Oppenheimer is an agent of the Soviet Union. The key charge that was too much dip on that chip, but yes. <laughs> the key was like, charge- he is the Communist Party. <laughs> yes. Exactly. The key charge against Oppenheimer was the Chevalier affair. Kari, can you remind us what that was about? Yes, his um, bestie Chevalier came over with his then wife, uh, pulled Oppie into the kitchen and was like, we have a mutual colleague in Britain. And that man would like, you know, any info that you can give him about where you are uh, with the uh, Los Alamos project, with the um, atomic uh, situation. And right away, Oppenheimer dismissed it. Uh, I won't say it sounded like he was angry, but he was very... He spoke with conviction that that is a treasonous um, 
proposition and he won't have anything to do with it. Then they have martinis and they were fine. Like he still kicks it with Chevalier. That is his friend. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's like if you came in. And Chevalier been kicked out the... Yeah. <laughs> girl, stop. That is treason. Get out. Girl, you don't pass me the shaker. Come so on, we can get these out. martinis. And watch this movie, girl. Okay. It would be just oh, like Oh, you know that. what you're skipping? It, what? Which, um, this reminded me of Kitty as a dinner host. Oh. She would make people drink um, soup. And then they'd be looking around for the rest of the food and she'd be somewhere drunk in the corner. Uh-huh. One time. She wasn't preparing meals guest. for dinner at all. No. She would invite you to dinner, but you might get a yeah. bowl of broth. Yeah. And it would be late too, like that dinner party <laughs> episode of The Office. <laughs> so you'd be starving. A prominent guest and many others, no doubt, will often dismiss themselves to go get cheeseburgers. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, that that was in there. <laughs> yeah, all before this is Kitty Talk. Kitty Talk, Eisenhower, yeah. not Eisenhower, Einstein and um, mm-hmm. Einstein knowing Oppie and their, yeah. a, li- a little bit about their relationship. Well, anyway, yeah. Strauss's notes say that the important point at issue is how long after the event occurred did O report to G and whether there was any reason to suspect that O knew that G had learned of it before he reported it. So this is uh, mm. G is Groves and that was his, I think it was Admiral Groves at the time. And so again, they're going back to this same Chevalier affair and um, rerunning that. The book tells mm-hmm. us that by autumn of 1953, Washington was a city in the grip of a witch hunt. The careers of hundreds of c- civil servants had come to an abrupt end on the flimsiest of charges. No one, least of all the president, seemed willing to stand up to Senator Joseph McCarthy. So this is the era of McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. When Eisenhower read the report against Oppie, he quickly realized that there was nothing new. Um, It was the same information that was previously reviewed. He also knew that he couldn't stop the investigation because he'd have to face McCarthy, who would accuse him of shielding a potential security risk. So Eisenhower directed the attorney general to place a blank wall between Oppenheimer and uh, classified material. When a friend of Oppie's, Admiral Parsons, got wind of the block, he made it his mission immediately to try to stop it because he felt like the the United States was making a big mistake. Well, in an effort to stop it, he was so worked up, he ended up having a heart attack and dying before he could go through with his plans. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. It was decided... And they would conduct an administrative review of Oppenheimer's security clearance. It would not be a trial in the formal sense. Oppie would be offered a choice. He could leave quietly or he could appeal the suspension of his security clearance before a panel would be appointed by Strauss. So what's on the line is his entire career and his reputation. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not really a trial, but that means they can kind of do whatever they want. Exactly. So it works for them in that they're not bound by the rules of American, the American legal system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. yeah, a lot on the line for Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um, Strauss planned to confront Oppenheimer on December 21st. Um, um, however, before he could meet with Appy, Appy's attorney, um, Herb Marks, showed up at his door because he had heard that Oppenheimer was under investigation. So Strauss saw this visit as a polite form of blackmail. When Strauss met with Oppenheimer, he told him that he faced Uh, He was faced with a very difficult problem pertaining to his continued clearance. President Eisenhower had issued an executive order requiring the reevaluation of all individuals whose files contained derogatory information. Oppie was allowed to read the charges and he said that there were um, 
And his response was that there were many items on there that could be denied. Some were incorrect and there were many that were correct. Strauss told Appy that he had until eight o'clock that evening to make a decision. Appy asked for a copy of the letter, but Strauss declined telling him you can't have a copy until you actually make a decision. When Appy was uh, leaving Strauss, Strauss offered him his chauffeured vehicle and Appy accepted. Appy was going to his attorney. The assumption would be right. But Appy had headed exactly where Strauss expected him to head. And that was to an attorney named Joe Volpe. And Volpe's office was bugged crazy. Mm -hmm. So Strauss got three hours of material of Oppenheimer talking to his attorney. They kind of planned it out. It was terrible Terrible. and really illegal. Very (laughs) illegal. He didn't even care. Robert Mm -hmm. then uh, went home, spoke to his wife and um, Vope and Marks, his other attorney, were there. And while he was there, you know, it's this is um, really distressing for him to go through because he has put in at this point, I want to say, I think they said 12 years um, with the government supporting them in their mission mm-hmm. to create a bomb. And he has felt himself to be quite uh, loyal. Um, so he's having this conversation with his wife. He's having drinks, of course, because that's what they do. But he also has a sleep, takes a sleeping pill and in his distress, he goes to the bathroom and ends up passing out and they have to take him to the hospital or something later that night. Mm-hmm. So he didn't immediately respond to Strauss that evening. He would respond the next day. And so he informed Strauss that he would not ex- resign because his You know, his reputation was at stake. Oppenheimer would enlist an attorney by the name of William Lloyd Garrison to represent him. Now, Garrison wasn't a trial lawyer. And in fact, one of the people that Oppie consulted suggested that you need to get a really good trial lawyer to handle this case, even though it's not being handled. But this wasn't a trial. In a trial. (laughs) So he didn't think that was necessary. So Mm -hmm. Garrison didn't have trial experience and he wasn't able to enlist an experienced trial lawyer to co-chair. This is like the beginning of just all kind of crazy stuff because Garrison Mm -hmm. wasn't given any of the materials for the trial to prepare. Um, And then Garrison tried to get an emergency security clearance so that he could access the same materials that um, the Strauss side, the prosecuting attorneys were um, accessing and they they refused to grant it. In fact, Strauss mm-hmm. told the, the Justice Department not to grant it. He said as a legal professional, did this anger you? At, <laughs> that's it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's just crazy. It's illegal stuff, right? And but Str- it's not a trial. And here's what Strauss <laughs> said. He said, neither Oppenheimer nor his lawyer had any of the rights afforded to a defendant in a court of law. This was an AEC personnel security board hearing, not a civil trial. And Strauss was going to be the arbiter of the rules. So he could to play the mm-hmm. game his way. That was that. Mm-hmm. So after a couple of months of preparing for the case, um, Strauss, a friend of Strauss's, excuse me, a friend of Oppie's presented a proposal to Strauss. And he proposed that um, if he, he were to, withdraw, if Strauss were to withdraw the former charges and restore Oppenheimer's uh, suspended security clearance, Oppenheimer would just resign. Just be mm. done with it. And it wasn't as if um, they were using Oppie as a, like he was an employee, he was a contracted person. So they can use mm-hmm. him or not use him. It, it wasn't a big deal. He was a consultant. Strauss felt like he had a really great case and he was content on embarrassing Oppenheimer. So he is like, ah, no, mm-hmm. we're, we're not going to do that. We're not mm-hmm. going to do that. And so Oppie agreed to fight his case before a hearing board. And in April 
uh, April 12th of 1954, the hearing board finally convened. The next day, the hearing met headlines on the, on the New York Times. And that is because Strauss was feeding information to the paper. Mm-hmm. He was doing all kind of crazy things. So I'm not going to get into the minutia of the trial because there is a lot of information in there. In fact, there are actual sections where they say it's the transcript of the, of the trials mm-hmm. with a lot of the things that Oppenheimer says, especially when he was on the um, on the stand of this hearing uh, and what Kitty how well. It showed in the book that Oppenheimer doesn't perform well under pressure. He's arrogant. He's an arrogant man. He doesn't feel like he should condescend to these questions. And that can actually mess with him because he starts dismissingly saying things like, yeah, I guess so. Yes, maybe. Yes. Yeah. When some things require more explanation or what they were saying actually wasn't true at all. And he should have spoken up for himself. And then he has this lawyer who's not experienced in um, a trial environment, who's also not challenging things, procedures or what's being said. So, and then Strauss being the overseer of the trial uh, of the, it wasn't a trial, it was a hearing. (laughs) Strauss being the overseer of it. He's, he's not interjecting because this is his playground and he wants it to play out the way it plays out. So it didn't go well. He's being questioned about friends and he's saying terrible things about friends that may or may not have been true. It's just, it just Mm -hmm. wasn't a good look. Like I said, he did not perform well under pressure. However, when Kitty was questioned and she was on the stand multiple times, uh, she performed successfully. She did very well. This is interesting because she's painted throughout the book as someone who's mentally not sound. Um, she either is an alcoholic or is taking a very strong sedative type medication for some type of psychotic issues. Uh, but this book is very favorable of Oppenheimer. Um when it comes to the records of Kitty speaking and her public um, persona, although no one may have liked no. her, she seemed <laughs> no to be a her. rough woman. <laughs> uh, she she seemed to speak with intelligence and calmness better than the man she was defending. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of stuff coming out about his many affairs. Real quick, yes. Oppenheimer was never faithful. This book goes on and on about how he was a devoted husband, um, despite his many extramarital affairs. Mm-hmm. 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 It does. Um, so... In his questioning, the Chevalier affair continuously was brought up. Of course, all his communist friends. And then, like Kari said, his extramarital affairs, specifically the one with Tatlock came out. The um, woman that unalived herself. She was a psychologist, if you remember. Oh, Jean. Yeah. And then she was also, Mm -hmm. though, she was also she was a communist. So. And she acknowledged it openly. Yeah. So anyway, her death was in question. So Mm -hmm. on the final day of the hearing, it it was May 5th. Appy thanked the board. It was a demonstration of deference designed to prove that he was a reasonable, cooperative person, a member of the establishment who could be worked with and trusted. Um, It was so clear. So they didn't went to the point of not trying to prove this man is a communist, but just trying to shame him now. (laughs) And then at the end of all that, he goes, thank you for your consideration (laughs) when it comes to the matters of this case. Yeah. And then he's like, that's going to make me look good. Thanking them. (laughs) That's the, is that not the arrogance of it all? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, whatever. On May 23rd, the board returned a final verdict. It was two to one. Oppenheimer was deemed a loyal citizen who was a security risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they agreed with them. They were like, he doesn't pay attention to the law. He operates outside of it. And he kind of, not the law, but just the status quo. And he thinks he can do whatever he wants. We don't think he's a communist, but he's not to be trusted. And I was like, yes, that is reasonable. 
Yeah. So they don't yes. again, they don't think he's a communist, but he did not violate any laws. He did not violate any security regulations. He's not being accused of breaking the law. This is a private hearing, essentially, within the AEC um, that they're doing. And so the mm-hmm. decision was uh, let I'll just read a couple. The four points that they mentioned, they said, we find that Dr. Oppenheimer's continuing conduct and association has reflected a serious disregard for the requirements of the security system. Um, We have found a susceptibility to influence which could have serious implications for the security interests of the country. We find his conduct in the hydrogen bomb program sufficiently disturbing as to raise a doubt as to whether his future participation, if characterized by the same attitudes in a government program relating to the national defense, would be clearly consistent with the best interests of security. Hmm. We have regretfully concluded that Dr. Oppenheimer has been less than candid in several instances in this testimony before this board. As I said, he was cutting up on the thing. He just, he doesn't perform well under pressure. Mm -hmm. The dissenting board member said that, um, First of all, the dissenting board member didn't even like Oppenheimer. Then the FBI started tailing him. And he's like, I'm going through a lot of trouble for this man I don't like. Mm -hmm. But this just isn't right. Yeah, exactly. That's essentially Mm -hmm. what he said. It's not it's not right. Most of the derogatory most of the derogatory information was in the hands of the committee when Dr. Oppenheimer was cleared in 1947. So this is information they already reviewed. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't matter then, it really don't matter years later yeah. after you've used up his intelligence <laughs> or, exactly. used, you know, used them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after the board made their decision, it was then sent to the AEC, the commission for a final mm-hmm. judgment. And that decision was four to one that he was a security risk. Oppenheimer's clearance, security clearance was rescinded just one day before it was due to expire. And so although the transcript for the hearing was expected to be confidential, that's what Strauss said, he persuaded his fellow commissioners um, to publish the transcript. And with um, within four years, the transcript would destroy the reputation and government career of guess who? Louis Strauss. So he 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 did damage Oppenheimer, but he also damaged himself. He he came out clearly as a bad guy. Um, Oppenheimer. A snake who would reduce himself to illegal tactics just for revenge. Yeah. Who would drag a man's extramarital affairs into um, the arena of whether he was fit to serve his country when do you know politicians? Like <laughs> everybody saw right through this is way more personal than it was in the interest of the country. And the book says that, you know, both men's careers took a hit, but it seems like Strauss's career took the hardest hit for mm-hmm. all his efforts because Oppenheimer was kind of praised as like this Galilean uh you know, iconic figure of science and truth versus I don't even know what. So a scientist <laughs> martyr and a victim of the McCarthy yeah. era excesses. So it, it really was, um, th- again, Prometheus taking this yeah. fire and sharing it and being punished with for it. Mm-hmm. And that, unless you want to share something else, that was the second part of um, American Prometheus. I think you did a great job. That's the (laughs) gist of it. Um, Now, Oppenheimer, his wife and his children did not go on to leave just amazing lives necessarily. They did um, build a home on the island of St. Kitts. Oh, I thought it was St. John. Yeah, probably St. John. <laughs> um, <laughs> where they tried to create just a a more carefree, easygoing life. People who visited said they looked poor, but had everything you really needed for happiness. Mm. Um, Oppenheimer, due to his chain smoking, would uh, die at, I think, 61 years old uh, from true. cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they threw his ashes in the ocean and the urn. Not just the, not just the <laughs> 
lashes to earn two. You know, Kitty be drinking. She was like, that's what he wanted. <laughs> As I was thinking, you sure? <laughs> but that's what she said. That's what she said. Um, Kitty remarried, but remained devoted to her Robert. Uh, she died. Um, she had kind of alienated her son, mm-hmm. especially one of her sons before then. Uh, they went on to try to form careers, one in science, without relying on the Oppenheimer name. Um, their daughter was a skilled linguist. Uh, the government, however, Strauss used the last after her parents died. Crazy, I believe, right? Strauss, Strauss, yeah, he used the last tube of toothpaste of power left his tube that was a terrible analogy um <laughs> to deny her a government job that she wanted um and she never really launched after that right. not, not getting that job she wanted she just kind of sunk into a depression she was married twice divorced twice and she took her own life uh leaving her money to the people of the island that she lived on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's all very tragic um yeah yeah well, why don't we take That's a that. quick break and then <laughs> you can come back and do the theme of the week. How's that? I think that's great. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So a reminder, you guys, the theme this week is how the U.S. and Japan became allies even after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, I am relying heavily on a time, an article from time.com, which I will um, put the link to in the show notes. So thinking all that the U.S. and Japan have been through, why are we forced friends? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that, Alexis? No, but it is a good question. You know what? Actually, I was thinking about it as I read the book. Not that specific question. How could you forgive this? (laughs) This is really wild. And how did this come to be? It was not that Mm -hmm. exact question, but very similar. Well, nearly 80 years ago, relations between Japan and America were very different. Um, August 6, 1945. Hiroshima, August 9th, 1945, Nagasaki. And then a week later, it was announced that Japan would surrender four years after its attack on Pearl Harbor had catapulted the U.S. into World War II. Today, however, things are very different. We love Japan culturally. Uh, yeah, Americans really have almost fetishized Japan, Japanese culture um, with manga, anime, and of course, Hello Kitty. <laughs> 84% of Japanese people feel close to the U.S. in kind, according to the uh, Japanese government's annual cabinet office poll, which was uh, the, the numbers I pulled were from 2018. And 87% of Americans say they have a favorable view of Japan. So how did we get here? Well, the progress of uh, reconciliation began as soon as the war ended. And there are some similarities here with the Civil War. Yes, because as soon as you win a war, you got to keep your people in the land that you have, uh, in in the loser's territory to make sure that they know they lost. Otherwise, they might start acting like they winning. Let me explain. So the first phase was the U.S. roughly seven year occupation of Japan mm-hmm. following the surrender. When Japan got a new constitution, it had American sauce all over it. Article nine of the constitution included a two part clause stating that Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation. And the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes also be renounced. And to accomplish that goal, land, sea and air forces, as well as other war potential will never be maintained. That's right. Japan will never have a military that lasted 
so so like a day, a couple of minutes, because the U.S. needed Japanese people to have a military. Yeah, because we have interests in that part of the world. Yeah, and we need an ally. so you can't have them out there with no military access. That doesn't even yeah. make sense. And how must it feel to Japanese people to have the this foreign nation occupy their land and then tell them that they can never build up weapons to protect themselves? If you need help, call Big Brother. Don't do nothing. But sometimes Big Brother need help. So, you know, keep a knife in the tuck. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny. The U.S. could use its Japanese bases to support military action elsewhere in Asia. Aha! North Korea and China, um, including H-bombs, you know? Mm -hmm. So these were bonds that left Japan's precious room for international maneuver, but it kept them on our side. Like like within a few years of this agreement, um, the Korean War happened. And then the U.S. was looking for ways around the terms that we had written into their constitution. And we pressed Japan to build up its own military, but we called it a self-defense force to get around that constitutional prohibition. Oh, we want you to so be able to protect a, yourself. Yeah, so it's a self-defense you. force that mm-hmm. you can use for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Many Japanese people were uncomfortable. You've gotten this idea, to are used to this idea of peace. We are now a country that does not um, engage in war, but now you actually want us to. And only a few years after you told us we absolutely cannot. Wow. So, um, quickly this, uh, post-war peaceful nation identity actually took root in Japan. Like for example, I read an article about Hiroshima only two years after the bomb was dropped. They had like an international festival of world peace where they were celebrating in the streets. Um, there was merrymaking. And the idea was they wanted to bring the world's eye to to them to show if we've been through this and we can act like this, we can embrace peace like this. How come no one else can embrace peace? Mm. So they have been through the worst part. Well, I won't say the worst. They have been through um, some one of the worst situations, definitely the worst, um, most catastrophic bomb situation. But at that time they were forgiving and and they wanted to be seen as a peaceful country a peaceful place um but anyway uh the shift was just one part of the larger motivation for the u.s and japan to get back on the same side because the cold war and global threats of communism were also coming uh the american occupation of japan ended in 1952 uh the peace of reconciliation was signed in san francisco and that's a treaty the agreement let the u.s maintain military bases there and a revision in 1960 said the u.s uh would come to japan's defense in an attack so it, mm. it secured that okay but okay so now military wise we're kind of under control as far as our relationship is concerned but then uh rivalries came up in the arena of commercialism in the 70s and 80s japanese cars were much cheaper and it was really um leading to the disintegration of the American auto industry. Uh, the U.S. and the world forced uh, Japan to up the cost of the of their uh, currency so that in the end, Japanese goods that were uh, exported cost twice as much. And it actually incentivized Japan to invest in factories in the U.S. and employ Americans. So then the economic balance was resettled. Now we have um, commercial mm, camaraderie forced and also military appeasement. The years since anniversaries have several times provided occasions to observe the extent of that reconciliation. How much are we truly um, invested in each other's interests? And it's shown where there are obvious gaps and hypocrisy. For example, on the 50th anniversary, American veterans groups protested plans for the Smithsonian expedition that explained the destruction of the atomic bombings and its effects on Japanese victims. That is what, Wait, what? the exhibit was to. Yeah. So the Smith, this is the Smithsonian. This is not a political institution. This is the um, museums. <laughs> Uh, They were going to have an exhibit that showed what these bombs did to Japanese victims that those exhibits were protested, arguing that it made Americans look like the aggressors. (gasps) Do with that what you will. Okay, All right. 
Meanwhile, a historic display of reconciliation came in 2016 when Barack Obama became the first U.S. president to visit Hiroshima. And then the Japanese prime minister um, visited Pearl Harbor seven months later. And that was uh, Shinzo Abe. A poll by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs found 43% of Americans believe the U.S. should strengthen our allegiance um, or alliance, excuse me, with Japan as China is becoming stronger in the region. And for real, a lot of Americans think Japan and China are like two steps away from each other. I bet a lot of people don't even know Japan is an island, but let's move on. So. <laughs> 2017 wow, poll found that 41% of Japanese people uh, think U.S. Japan relations will get worse and not better in Ooh, the future. Interesting. The ethical debate over whether it was the right decision to use the atomic bomb in 1945 or um, if it ever would be continues. Diplomatic relations may have been settled. Um, says Sheila A. Smith, a senior fellow for Japan studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And she's also the author of a book, Japan's New Politics and the U.S. Japan Alliance. But she says the moral question, I think we will never resolve. And that's that. Wow. Thanks, Kari. Yeah. You have any questions on how the U.S. and Japan became allies? No, and no. Friends? That was um, quite informative. I'd love to read that article. Yeah. While um, the people of Japan and America seem to be very fond of each other's culture, uh, government wise, it seems to be an arranged. uh, What do you call it? A marriage of convenience. Mm, Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. That makes the most sense. Of course. Are there any other kind of alliances in politics? No, it's usually convenience. So, well, thank that, you that. for sharing that <laughs> tidbit. It's very um, informative and it answers that question. Um, why are they so cozy at this point after such a horrific mm-hmm. occurrence? All right. So, yes. Kari, why don't you share your final verdict and whether or not you'd recommend this book? OK, well, um, I will say right off. No, I will not recommend this book. I did not enjoy it. I felt the people in it were very hard to uh, read about because they were so um, selfish and focused exclusively on the ascension of their own name and reputations come what may. And then once they had built this great thing that they'd invested so much time and money to, they immediately regretted it. I will say Oppenheimer in this book really had his fill of fame. He went on tours. He did the press circuit after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He said the things um, that people wanted him to say. And then after he was done with that, he began he began this campaign to kind of right the wrongs he had uh, potentially started. So he beca- he began on this anti-nuclear weapon campaign full force and it just felt disingenuous, even though I'm sure his whole heart was in, in it. He was just always so self-serving um, reading about reading about this type of moral crusade uh, really disgusted me because uh, we're raised to believe that history is littered with the efforts of great men. And these men have great intentions. Uh, These men have shaped the world, polished it and held up the best parts of it as like, this is what you should be. And that's just not the case. People are by default evil (laughs) and we have to always work against our evil nature. Um, And I felt like these were people who uh, um, dismissed the most sacred parts of our universe to embrace the parts that uh, or, or, or just just the way that they talked about um, the power within creation and, and what can what can be made and done. They were just so dismissive of the destruction that they caused. Um, I, I just. But they but they held so tightly to how they were perceived in public light. You know, what I mean, you killed hundreds of thousands of people, but you are so broken up about your reputation. It's not like um, Oppenheimer is really pleading with um, people 
for some type of absolution or uh, his main focus really seems to be on how history will see him as the father of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. I know it took a lot of work to um, produce this. And I do admire hard work. <laughs> However, uh, the result matters. And this was this end was not worth the means, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So it felt very empty. I felt very empty at the end reading this book. Um, the trial just went on and on. The trial, that's not a trial. It was so petty and small. And these a lot of these people are just petty and small geniuses right. and it's such a waste of talent mm-hmm. <laughs> so no I wouldn't recommend it but it, it was really interesting to see the continuation of the FBI's development from flowers right. killers of the flower moon yeah I thought that and was to understand more yeah understand more Hoover's motivation that was cool um I did appreciate now knowing how the atomic bombs production came to be and the H-bomb which has never been used um but you know Edward Teller and the that invention and and how these men ended up hating each other and living terrible wow, lives. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Alexis, what about you? Would you recommend American Prometheus? And what did you think about this book? Oh, boy. Okay. So there was a lot of detail in this book. And yeah, we read books with a lot of detail, but there was something <laughs> about this book. Uh, at the beginning, it had a, a lot of science stuff. And I like to reserve my science for the kitchen. Um <laughs> But but you didn't like um, <laughs> lessons in chemistry. <laughs> I, if you read that book, you get it. No, but I did. <laughs> I remember our wrap up. Oh. Our wrap up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I expected <laughs> the second part to be uh, a bit more engaging because it was after, you know, the bomb had been created and issued. So. Uh, I felt like in the second portion of the book with the trial. And so that part I like, I liked hearing and seeing the transcripts of that. Um, oh, okay, uh, the okay. very details. I didn't feel like it was too long, but there was a lot of extra info, extra information within that, not just this transcript of the trial. So I did appreciate that. Um, I feel like the second part had more um stuff that I'd be interested in. And what I found for mm-hmm. me is that maybe this book needs to be taken in bite sizes so it doesn't feel so overwhelming. We covered this book of what is it 700 plus pages in 2 weeks and I think it needed way more time than that. Um so you can just for me at least to process the information. I appreciated um, reading about what communism looked like in the 40s and 50s. Um, It seemed to be a difference um, represented in the book um, with communism. And surely it didn't give it a full breakdown or anything, but how um, Appy supported it in the, the 40s when he was not a member, but they were his friends <laughs> versus mm-hmm. in the 50s where those were not necessarily um, he weren't he didn't find any associations with them. So there was a change in how Americans at least view communism in this um, this educational, this academia, academic, academic realm. It seemed like Pearl Harbor was the galvanizing event that really made you. Um, draw the line in the sand. Were you going to be a full-blooded American or were you going to dabble in extra American affairs? <laughs> extra American I don't know affairs. how to say it. <laughs> so, yeah, that, so that's, um, so while I did not value the first part of this book at all, I appreciate the second mm-hmm. part a little bit more. And for, if, you know, if you like history, you know, history, I think it's a recommendable book. You get to learn about these people that are held up on a pedestal and see who they mm-hmm. are. And this book really reveals who people are. It tells us who Oppenheimer was and you may not like him. As Kari said, she didn't like the people in the book. So um, 
that's very clear. So would I recommend the book? Actually, I would. Just kidding. I would too. <laughs> Alexis brings up great points. This is not a work of fiction where you have to love the characters. This is history and it's history that is relevant today in a lot of ways. So yeah, why not? If you got <laughs> But break it up. Don't read it in two weeks do like we did. Not. That is not the answer. Take your time. Take your time. Yeah. Don't rush through it. Yeah. Just uh, give yourself like five years to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> the facts ain't changing. <laughs> a lot of time. That is true. A lot. A lot. Of five years. That's good. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, Alexis, <laughs> thank you for that. You're amazing. What are we reading next week? I Am Not Your Negro by James Baldwin. That's right. And that's like 150 pages. Ooh, we and need a powerful, break. I hear. Yeah. <laughs> so, I can't wait to get into that. I think there was thank a, you a all movie, for listening. A movie about that, a documentary. Yeah. I think I watched the documentary. Yeah. So, this um, book was um, written. In line with the documentary. Oh. So it's kind of pieced together. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I remember that. So you've seen the documentary. Yes. Okay, I think I'll read it and then watch it too then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds good. All right, you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Kari Herrera and Alexis Sanaria. That's me. Support the cause by signing up for our newsletter on LitSocietyPod.com, leaving a five-star review for our show and a comment on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, tell your mother. Tell your mother and your best friend about this show if you enjoy what you just heard mm -hmm. and uh yeah that's it well you guys we love you uh and we'll see you next week read something read something <laughs> <laughs> oh and subscribe on youtube bye <laughs>